The following program uses what are sometimes called four-letter words, though in this case they're actually eight letters and perhaps a seven-letter gerund. It's Monday, June 6th, 2022. From Peachfish Productions, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. There was a jubilee for Her Majesty the Queen over the past few days. Hello, Highness. Hello. And a possible goodbye to you, Boris. The conservatives took what was widely described as a no-confidence vote. In fact, that was pessimistic and inaccurate. By a count of 211 to 148, the Tory party backed Boris Johnson as their man. Losing a no-confidence vote is a little like having your yacht seized. I mean, it sucks to lose, but you still at one point owned a yacht. Most professions, just being in a place to be subjected to a no-confidence vote... You've made it pretty far in this life. You know, guys who have to wear a name tag, they don't have a no-confidence vote looming over their head. CEOs do. Party heads do. Positions of some esteem. Hey, boss, every time Reggie cleans the shake machine, it tastes like bleach. Hector and I are loath to propose this, but might a no-confidence vote be in the offing? One thing about megalomaniacal national leaders... You might wish to part with them, but does no confidence really apply to their status? When I think of Boris Johnson, I don't think of no confidence. I don't know. Maybe it's different in the UK. Johnson had been getting on everyone's nerves. Here was the reaction at said jubilee, according to the Guardian, quote, stepping out of his car when it pulled up to St. Paul's Cathedral in London with his wife, Carrie, the prime minister was met with boos and whistles by frustrated spectators. That was the actual booing, what you're hearing or heard, was the actual booing played on the BBC. The broadcast was later accused of sweetening the audio to make it seem like more booing than it was, to somehow filtering out the thunderous applause he must have gotten. Which is weird. Why even argue about this, right? Every politician gets booed every time they go anywhere where they don't control the crowd. At least they do in the U.S., But apparently it's quite different in Britain, according to Isabel Hardiman of the Coffee Shots UK podcast. The fact is, of course, is that um, Tory MPs were really quite shaken by the the booing over the weekend. And, you know, there has been a debate over how many boos there were and whether there were more cheers, but that just mysteriously didn't get picked up by the microphones in the same way. But I think that for a lot of Conservative MPs, I I mean, I was talking to one who, who was basically saying, well, look, you know, It's fine for a normal politician to get booed, but Boris Johnson isn't used to being booed. Oh, heavens. You can't spell Boris Johnson without boo, but apparently you can't boo Boris Johnson. The poor guy falls to pieces. They're so genteel over there. I quite admire it. As an Englishman might say, well, indeed, whoever this Brandon chap is, I encourage him to go forth. Because, you know... That's what the English possess in abundance. They have resolve, they have dignity, and they have confidence, which is to say specifically 59% of one subset of them do, at least until the next election. On the show today in the spiel, now that every shooting with more than two killed is national news, will we have room for any other kind of national news? But first, George Carlin once said, think of how stupid the average person is and realize half of them are stupider than that. For that alone, he should be in the pantheon of the greats, but George Carlin is so much more. 
There's a new two-part HBO documentary called George Carlin's American Dream. It follows Carlin from his beginnings as a straight-laced comic to the bearded anti-culture icon that he became. Director, producer, and writer of that documentary, Michael Bonfiglio, joins me next. This is Jess Betancourt, the host of DNA ID, the only true crime podcast that exclusively covers cases solved using forensic genealogy. DNA ID goes behind the headlines to answer your questions about this remarkable new crime-solving tool, how it works, how cases are selected, why the cases were unsolved for so long, and how the justice system is addressing it. I include input from law enforcement to give you the inside scoop that we all crave with a straightforward, no-nonsense delivery. You can find DNA ID on any podcast platform. Episodes come out weekly on Mondays. Religion easily has the greatest bullshit story ever told. Think about it. Religion has actually convinced people that there's an invisible man living in the sky who watches everything you do every minute of every day. And the invisible man has a special list of ten things he does not want you to do. And if you do any of these ten things, he has a special place full of fire and smoke and burning and torture and anguish where he will send you to live and suffer and burn and choke and scream and cry forever and ever till the end of time. But he loves you. George Carlin was undoubtedly one of the two or three best and most important comedians ever to tell a joke into a microphone. But as a new HBO documentary teaches us, He was also four or five different comedians himself. As he acknowledges, George Carlin's American Dream, a two-parter that if you are a fan of comedy or just really interesting and important Americans, you gotta watch. One of the directors of this, the other one's a guy named Judd Apatow, forget him, the other one, is here with me, Michael Bonfiglio, who has directed a lot of stand-up specials and a lot of... ESPN 30 for 30 documentaries, a real master of his craft in his own right. Michael, thanks for joining me here on The Gist. Thanks for having me, Mike. You're a stand-up director. I assume you're a huge fan of stand-up comedy, right? I'm a big fan. I've I've only directed a couple of stand-up specials, but I, I really enjoy it. Did you get into directing the stand-up specials through what route? Um, It was actually a connection that Judd made. Um, Judd and I have been working together for about 10 years or so on different stuff. Um, And he introduced me to Jerry Seinfeld, who was looking to do uh, a special where he revisited all of his early material leading up to his first Tonight Show appearance. And he didn't want it to just be the stand-up. He wanted to sort of tell the story of himself growing up as a comedy obsessed kid. And so Jerry and I met and hit it off and and started kicking ideas around together. And we came up with uh, the special Jerry before Seinfeld. Right. Which was great because it really was truly a documentary with a lot of stand-up elements, I would say, just like Gary Goldman's The Great Depression documentary with stand-up elements. Exactly. Yeah. About, about 80 or 90% stand-up, but, but sort of couched in this documentary storytelling um, to complement what was going on on stage. But also, I would say 
in both of those, you know, not just uh, cut to each of the t- two comedians I mentioned, their hometowns, um, there's a narrative structure kind of imposed on it, I guess, by you and the comedian in question. It tells more of a story than a normal stand-up special does, usually. Yeah, ab- absolutely. And both of those, um, you know, were very carefully planned out to be able to do that. You know, we, we worked really hard on um, creating that narrative and making sure that we weren't just going to a documentary scene just for the fun of it. Um, it, it was, it was very, both of those, we, we put a lot of, a lot of time and effort into, into, to crafting them, um, in a way that the two elements would really work together, you know, and tell, tell a story. So speaking of that, there's a lot of George Carlin in the idea of structure, in the idea of being really assiduous and uh, intentional. Okay, a little bit of a buzzword. He'd probably fillet me for that. (laughs) But the way he would construct jokes, it wasn't a, you, you hear some comedians say, you know, I write on stage. Or some comedians are brilliant. They improv in the moment. They do car, uh, crowd work. That wasn't what George Carlin was most known for. Not at all. Not at all. He was extremely uh, d- diligent in his writing. He, he, w- he was very, very particular, very specific, um, almost obsessively so. And, and he, he absolutely wrote everything out. Um, before delivering it. So yeah, yeah he, he was not a guy who, who improved on stage. Before I even watched the documentary, I knew this to be true, just if you're a huge fan of his, he will be talking, uh, it's, maybe this is more in later routines. He'll be talking, he'll be doing, he had something that he called his rants, but he'll be talking about, you know, US foreign policy. He'll get a huge laugh. He'll go back half a sentence just to ramp it up in the exact way that he wants to present it. And you could tell it was all word for word, seldom would he deviate from uh, that script, but it worked brilliantly. Yeah, he, he he was such a gifted writer and performer. And that that combination is really, it's really rare, you know, but but his his performance skills were honed for over such a long period of time, you know, and and in early days of of television um and the sort of waning days of of radio but uh you know he started off as as a as a radio guy as a dj and um doing comedy on on the radio and doing voices and performing and and that was something that he had done as a kid you know he recorded himself his his mom got him a a tape recorder very early on in the in the in the 40s and he uh he he would record himself doing little little bits and things that he he invented and and so he he was a a real true old school performer and then coupling that with his incredible writing and his ideas um really makes him just a, a, an incredibly unique talent judd was like that too he would have the recorder and do a lot of bits and interview other comedians yeah he interviewed yeah. comedians all through <laughs> high school yeah yeah so how important to the documentary was the fact that you had, I guess they were unpublished, but a lot of material where George was reflecting on his own life to the extent where he pretty much narrates his own documentaries more than a decade since his passing. We knew going into it that we would have access to an extraordinary amount of material. And so it was always the the idea to have him tell his own story because we could, you know, oftentimes you can't do that because the person, you know, if, if they're dead, they haven't left behind the incredible treasure trove of material and reflection that George did. But he was not only in the public eye for decades and decades and doing 
public interviews and things like that. But he was also a hoarder and he kept everything. And so there, there are materials in the film, you know, even the things that he recorded in, on an early VCR, like in the early seventies, um, that he kept, you know, that, that archives didn't have, um, plus all the personal stuff. And then a key piece of, um, of archival material that we got our hands on very early on was, um, in the early 90s, he did a he, he was planning on doing an autobiography. And so he sat down with uh, Tony Hendra and recorded about over 20 hours of, of conversations of him reflecting on his life and remembering things and telling stories. And um, that was eventually turned into the posthumous autobiography called Last Words. But we got our hands on the those tapes that he had made. And it would say, sort of showed a different quality than in most of his public interviews, you know, um, where he could be sort of a little bit more presentational and a little more self-aware. But um, the the tapes that he did privately with Tony Hendra for this autobiography were very unguarded and um, just had a, a, a really different openness and uh, that we, we just really responded to. And, and so it's you hear a lot of that in the film. If you task George Carlin with being his own narrator, in what ways was he, or in what subject areas maybe, was he an unreliable narrator? Oh, that's a really good question. Um, I'm not completely sure. Um, he he really was pretty honest all the time in in talking about himself. Um, he, I, you know, I think there, there are things like his, his big transition from uh, straight, laced comedian to counterculture guy. Um, you know, I think he, he thought about how to present that a lot and he could, because he was asked about it a lot. And so, so he sort of figured out his version of it. My own personal take is it's probably a little bit more complicated, um, in terms of, you know, this was something that, that we debated at times, um, you know, in making the film was, you know, was there maybe a tiny bit of, cynicism there in saying, you know, hey, I better keep up with the culture. Right, right. He's a keen observer of culture. He was seeing what was going on around him. He was always, you know, hipper or funnier than everyone in the room. He's going to let someone, whoever that may be, be the first counterculture voice. And it's not him. I don't think he'd want that. Right. And even though it, it is absolutely true that, that he, he took a, a massive pay cut uh, to do that, and it, w it was risky. It, it maybe wasn't quite as risky in some ways, just because that is where the culture was moving at that point. He wasn't. He right. didn't grow his hair out and start talking about, uh, you know, the environment and women's rights in 1962. You know, it was right. 1970. Um, right. It was 1970. It wasn't. But it still was a pretty. Yeah. It yep. was still a, a, an extremely bold and risky move though. So Cliff Nesterov, who's in the documentary and I've talked to him a lot, and he really makes a point that of all the arts, comedy is the one that ages most poorly for a number of reasons. You know, taste change and comedy is so subjective and laughter is involuntary, all, all these reasons. But as best we can, evaluate him as a straight comic. Uh, we know what kind of success he has, which was good. He'd always get invited on Ed Sullivan and variety shows with John Davidson, hit me in the head but how good was he just as you know a straight comic without all the embellishments that we know him for as this countercultural voice here so you mean like in the mid 60s that that period yeah give me like you know if george carlin had stopped 
Could you write the history of comedy in the 60s if George Carlin had given it up in 1969 and we never heard from him from the 70s on further? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think he, he was incredibly gifted and and he was really funny. I mean, a lot of that stuff does hold up and most of it is because of his performance. Um, you know, he just had a real likability. He was extremely polished on stage. Um but he was not particularly influential, I don't think, at that time. Um, he didn't become influential until after he made his big countercultural change. But one of the things about that period that I find really fascinating with him, that sort of in the early 60s, when he's with Jack Burns, and then when he first goes solo, he's really trying to find his voice. And he was he was influenced by Lenny Bruce and Mort Saul and people who were talking about real issues and and ideas and and he was trying to figure out how he could do that too but then also have mainstream success and so you see in the film i mean he's talking about the john birch society and the kkk and he's talking about nepotism in the kennedy administration and and he's doing this kind of edgier idea based stuff and it's just not really clicking for him he's not getting the mainstream recognition that he really wanted you know when when he w- was starting out he wanted to be like Danny Kaye or Bob Hope he wanted to be a movie star a comedic movie star but what other what other models were there you know Lenny Bruce wasn't even getting arrested yet back then well well he was actually he he, he was just starting in fact George was arrested with him in 1962 um but uh but yeah it was it, 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 I think at that time in the early 60s his main goal was to become a star and to become a a, a, a well-regarded famous movie star really mm-hmm. um and doing that that material that sort of was a little bit edgier was not connecting with the mainstream audiences and so he went after those mainstream audiences and succeeded and then realized you know it's almost like you know the dog chasing the car if he gets it what does he do with it you know i mean he what george realized was that this was not actually what he was looking for that the success in that mainstream world wasn't him. In reading reviews of it and people who just use the documentary as a jumping off point to talk about George Carlin, uh, and this was also mentioned in the documentary, the interpretation of George Carlin today, how often George Carlin shows up as a quote on Twitter or someone either using or misappropriating a George Carlin routine. And I wonder, you would know this, how much was there a let's set the record straight and how much was just, well, he seems to be still influential. I'm not sure in the ways that he necessarily intended, but this at least gives us a signal that George Carlin is still quite relevant to the current conversation. So in terms of inspiration, was it more like they're getting him wrong or more like, hey, people are talking about him? It was probably more the latter. I mean, uh, you know, it was something that we talked about from the very beginning, Judd and I, of like, you know, part of the reason to do this is that he is, which is bizarre how relevant he still is and how frequently you know, every couple of weeks, George Carlin is trending on Twitter for a different reason. And the fact that he's sort of claimed by both ends of the political spectrum was fascinating to us. And so it, it seemed like a, a great time to 
kind of dig into why, you know, and really look at the work and look at the man and, and see where he was coming from. Um, but we never talked about kind of setting the record straight, um, though we were very careful about, um, you know, being true to his philosophies and his values, really, ultimately. Right. Because what I always thought as someone who is a huge George Carlin fan was encapsulated in things that Kelly has said, which is when you think you ask yourselves, I wonder what George Carlin would have said about this. And usually people who are his fans think, oh, he would have said something more or less in agreement with my mindset. And her point is, no, what you could expect is that you would not expect the angle that he would take. That is the most important thing to know about George Carlin. And guess what? He probably, if there were 10 issues you wanted him to weigh in on, he would have, whoever you are, would have pissed you off about three of them. That's, I think that's probably true. You know, um, I, I, I consider myself on the very far end of the political spectrum. And I agree with a lot of things that George said and a bunch of them I don't, you know. Um, so I, I think he he definitely did not like being uh, lumped into any kind of a group. Um, he, he was vehemently opposed to that. Um, but I think that if you look at his work and the things that he talked about over the course of his life, um, you, you understand where, what his values were. And ultimately it, in my interpretation, it really comes down to things that he said about watching hum, human beings con consistently make the wrong decisions um, as, as a species, you know, uh, choosing, he, he said, you know, choosing competition over cooperation, choosing property over people. Um, he really believed that we need to treat one another better, um, and that we are consistently failing and that our values are in the wrong places. And so those ideas, I, I think it's pretty safe to say that that was consistent throughout his life. Given your where you just situated yourself pretty far left, was there a bunch of uh, material that he um, produced that you disagree with? Not politically, no. Um, I, I think that there, there, he certainly has some stuff that hasn't aged particularly well. Yeah, he he definitely did some things that would be seen as maybe sexist, that would be maybe seen as racist these days. I mean, you know, people have pretty strict definitions of some of these terms. Who knows if he'd stick by them? Yeah, well, and, you know, a, a good example, I think, of, of how his thinking evolved and, and you know, just in, in thinking about today's conversations and debates over language, particularly in comedy, you know, um, in the early 80s, he, he has a, a, a bit that it's he says, um, you know, uh, had you ever noticed that a lot of the people that are against abortion are people you wouldn't want to fuck in the first place? Big cheer from the audience. Big cheer from the audience. Yeah. The original version of that joke was, did you ever notice that a lot of women who are against abortion are people are women that you wouldn't want to fuck in the first place? He changed his language there, you know, and changed it to people. I, I, I don't know what that means. But that's a fact. He looked at the exact same joke and he changed it a few years later. He never addressed it that I'm aware of. He never talked about it. But don't he changed his he changed his joke. joke. Don't you think it invites? Oh, it's a it's a bigger target. It's a bigger it? target. Absolutely, <laughs> yeah. and that it could be the reason he made the change could be based entirely on that. I have no idea. But uh, but he was somebody who did. He, he was very self reflective, 
and and he did examine his work. Michael Bonfiglio is one of the directors, along with Judd Apatow, of the new George Carlin two-part magnum opus on HBO, George Carlin's American Dream. Thanks so much, Michael. Thanks so much, Mike. A lot of fun. And now the spiel. I noticed something in all the news bulletins topping today's news today. This was NPR. There were shootings in eight states over the weekend that left at least 15 people dead. Some of these were mass shootings. In Philadelphia, multiple... And on ABC Network News... Coming after another wave of mass shootings over the weekend, two incidents in Philadelphia and Chattanooga alone left six people dead and more than two dozen wounded. The Economist went beyond just Philadelphia and Chattanooga. At least six people were killed and more than 25 injured in a mass shooting in Pennsylvania and Tennessee, according to police. Two people were also reportedly shot dead in Saginaw, Michigan. What's unusual isn't what's perverse, the gun carnage across America. That's actually routine. But today, for obvious reasons, all the news decided to cover the routine as news. It's true, the three killed in Philadelphia, they were the most killed at one time in over a decade, but there have been 194 fatal shootings in that city so far this year. Those referred to in the news report did happen all at once. They do account for 1.5% of the city's total. There have been seven so-called mass shootings, as defined by the source, cited in the news reports in Philadelphia this year. Chattanooga also had another mass shooting one week ago. Six injured, none killed, didn't make the news. The point is that... At any juncture, during any week over the last two years, every newscast where it's so inclined could have led with a story of mass shootings. Not the dozens of dead variety, but two or three victims at a time. It has never stopped happening, even though it's just started to be reported. Is it good to report the usual background thrum of pop, pop, pop as if it were news? Well, There's a good argument we never should have become inured to it in the first place. But I don't know that it's that we're ignoring these stories or that we're so calloused. I think that there are costs and tolls of reporting on mass shootings as often as they happen, which is to say every day, mass shootings with multiple dead nearly every day. In Sacramento, two months ago, there was a mass shooting in the Nightlife District where the basketball arena sits. In Milwaukee one month ago, there was a mass shooting in the Nightlife District after a Bucks game. That's the basketball team. Here is Milwaukee station WISN ABC 12 reporting on one spate of arrests. 17 people shot Friday night. Wednesday, prosecutors charged three men, saying they opened fire into the crowd. Investigators released this photo saying Lamont Siller, Christopher Murray, and Marquise Jackson were near the food trucks. And the visual on the screen is the picture of three African-American young men. Here was the report, same station, to some earlier charges in the same shooting. Otis Green, Jeremiah Fraylon, and Marlique Brown-Jewel are also shooting victims. They all face gun possession charges. None is accused of firing a gun Friday night. 
Again, three mugshots of African-American men. There have been 251 homicide victims in Chicago this year. The city is 50% white people. Of the 251 victims, 12 were white, over 150 were black. Philadelphia, city that's 40% African-American. Those 194 gun victims I mentioned, 158 are African-Americans. Overall, in the country, in 2020, the CDC reported 19,350 gun homicide victims. African Americans accounted for 62% of the total, white people 21%. So that is victims, that's not offenders, that's true, but you have a 90% chance of being killed by a person of the same race as you are. 12,000 African Americans killed by guns in the last year for which we have good statistics. This is gun crime. It has been ignored, the argument goes, and the reason it's been ignored is we don't care about most of the victims. Here is Heather Sharon, a reporter for Chicago station WTTW on the Mincing Rascals podcast. We tolerate high levels of violence on the south and the west sides that we would not tolerate as a city on the north and downtown side. That's the structural racism. It doesn't have anything to do with sort of this specific sort of debate. But the fact is, is that when there is violence downtown and on the north side Mm -hmm. and it impacts white people, proclamations get made, initiatives are announced, there's there's hubbub, there's it's it's a crisis. Actually, almost all Chicagoans think gun violence in the whole city is a horrible problem. It's not just the 12 white victims of gun violence that drive that opinion. And while it is true that much more attention is paid to violence in more affluent neighborhoods, with residents there having more political and social capital, the hundreds of murders a year outside those neighborhoods are not actually tolerated. They're mourned and railed against and wailed over and policed. Yes, they're policed. Policed, that has become a pejorative. But to not tolerate murder necessarily means to actively and proactively police. Not to stupidly police, not to brutally police, though that is too often bid the mode. But every regime that does not tolerate murder includes the police policing. And that has not been a popular project among the very same people who made the decision to tell you, as news consumers, that gun violence needs to be paid attention to. 2020 was our summer of racial reckoning. The outpouring of outrage over the killing of George Floyd vied along with the unprecedented pandemic to be our number one story. And the number one issue stemming from the George Floyd story was police brutality, especially the police killings of unarmed black people. The police in the U.S. are in need of reform. 2020's 18 unarmed black men who were shot and killed by police, according to the Washington Post database, are all stories worthy of examination. The Mapping Police Violence database has a higher count, 46 black people unarmed who were killed, but they include non-shootings, plus every person who police say attempted to grab a gun is listed as unarmed. No matter what the accurate number, somewhere between 18 and 46, I say do the stories, tell the stories. You will find lots of abuse. You'll find also lots of cops being in impossible situations, but it's all worth telling. But let's admit that for a couple of years, police abuse, that was core to the narrative that we were being told nationally. And what wasn't core was the more routine story of civilian slaughter. Now the news is showing an interest in telling those stories. Good. They were always there. 
More than one mass shooting a day for the last four years, according to how the Gun Violence Archive defines it. 611 mass shootings in 2020. These slaughters, when framed as a story of gun reform and sympathetic victims and sympathetic communities, rightly sympathetic, I would say. Now, that's something that activists and much of the media know how to convey. When the emphasis turns to law enforcement interdictions or the possible usefulness of incarceration, that becomes a story that many in the media will struggle with or not want to cover. We actually went through a lot of these discussions that we may be having now. When I was starting in news, crime was high and pictures of arrested black men peppered newscasts. By the mid-90s, there was a growing backlash to the stigmatization of presenting these visuals, but also these stories. Progressive news directors sought to get away from excessive emphasis on stories of murder at all. I remember an NPR ombudsman saying stories of murder, not as policy, but it's just individual stories of someone being killed, weren't really proper for a national news network. If it bleeds, it leads, turned from a cynical motto to an accurate accusation, and so coverage choices change. Don't believe me? Go to the New York Times, just the New York Times, not talking about the New York Post or local TV news, and look at their coverage of the Central Park Five in 1989. Compare that to the December 2019 murder of Tessa Majors. She was the Columbia undergrad where the actual murderers were teenage black boys, as opposed to the Central Park Five case, what we know now. But the tone and the tonnage were night and day. The pullback from the late 80s, early to mid 90s way of covering these stories, that was rational. There was an insensitivity to the daily litany of perp walks and mug shots. So you might be saying, okay, reform's not that hard. It has to be something like, just don't be excessive or insensitive. I don't know if it's that easy. I suspect the issues around gun violence are a bit too sharp for most national newsrooms as currently constituted to cover in their full complexity. To me, to get to the answer to gun violence, to lessen the number of people killed, somewhat reliant on laws, very much reliant on tactics. When it comes to American homicide, it's good that we're paying attention, even if the why, the who, and the how may not be that new. Is it news? I say yes, but that's subjective. Objectively speaking, we are in an acute American crisis. And that's it for today's show. Corey Wara produces the gists in an assistant producer capacity. Joel Patterson, he's the senior producer of the gist. Michelle Pesca is the coo, COO, we sometimes say coo, of Peachfish Productions. The gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to advertisecast.com slash the gist. Oomperu, jeeperu, dooperu. And thanks for listening. <laughs>